podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth, from cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Why do some killers seek more attention than others? Is it a sick sense of twisted pride they take in their crimes? A need for recognition or notoriety acknowledging their inner darkness? Or is it a need to be seen as something other than human? To be seen as larger than life? To be made into an immortal symbol of darkness? John Eric Armstrong is an American serial killer who seemed to seek that level of attention, that level of notoriety, between the years of 1991 and 2000. John Eric Armstrong is thought to have murdered anywhere from 5 to a total of 18 women all throughout the world. Armstrong was a killer looking to make a name for himself. Whether he committed all those murders or not, he wanted the world to see him as a monster, as a serial killer with a high count of victims. John Eric Armstrong is a serial killer that wanted attention for his crimes. Unlike other serial killers, he wasn't content to hide in the shadows forever. He wanted the world to know just what he had done. He wanted everyone to see him for the dark creature he saw himself as. So today, we look into the darkness itself and try to illuminate more about the creature known as the baby doll killer. This is John Eric Armstrong. We examine John Eric Armstrong, a man who traveled the world in order to enact his dark fantasies on unsuspecting sex workers throughout the world. John Eric Armstrong was born November 23, 1973, in New Bern, North Carolina. He was the oldest of two children, having a younger brother, Michael, who was five years younger than him. Growing up, it was thought that John Eric's father was an abusive man, taking his anger and rage out on both his wife and his oldest son, John Eric. It has been alleged that John Eric's father sexually abused him from a young age, as well as physically abusing him and his mother. One evening, when John Eric was only two years old, he would fall out of a window breaking his leg. His father was supposed to be watching him at the time of the accident. When John Eric was five years old, his parents gave birth to his younger brother, Michael. John Eric seemed to have an instant close relationship with his younger baby brother, 
Unfortunately, that relationship would never be able to grow with the two boys. When Michael was only two months old, he was found deceased in his crib. It was determined that two-month-old baby Michael died of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. With the death of his young baby brother, John Eric's own descent into mental instability would begin. Not long after Michael's death, John Eric's father would abandon the family, leaving John Eric and his mother for another woman. It would only be a few months later when John Eric, only five years old, would attempt to take his own life. The loss of Michael Armstrong weighed heavily on his five-year-old brother, John Eric. John Eric missed and grieved for his two-month-old baby brother, not understanding why the baby had been taken from their family. In his grief, the five-year-old John Eric would take his bicycle out one afternoon and go for a ride. While riding his bicycle, John Eric would happen across a busy street filled with oncoming traffic. In his grief, John Eric rode his bicycle into the street, narrowly missing, being hit, and seriously hurt. When asked why he had rode his bike into the street, he would tell his mother. He said he wanted to be with his baby brother. John Eric would hope to get hit by an oncoming car that day, but he was not. He survived the suicide attempt, but his grief would continue to consume him for the duration of his childhood into his adult life. John Eric Armstrong's teenage years would be hard on the young man. He was not a popular kid. Being overweight and freckled, he would often be teased and bullied by other teens in his class due to his weight. John Eric Armstrong would state that he saw himself as inferior to his classmates, and sensing his lack of confidence, the other teens would tease him further. When John Eric was 15 years old, he would be institutionalized for one month. The incident was due to John Eric having locked himself in a bathroom after a girl he knew had begun pressuring him for a sexual relationship. In hopes of dealing with John Eric's growing mental instability, he would begin to see a psychologist as a later teen. The goal of therapy was to help him deal with the pain and loss of his younger brother at such a fragile age. When John Eric was 18 years old, he would have his high school sweetheart Kelly taken from him when she became enamored with another teen. According to Armstrong, Kelly chose the other boy because that boy lavished constant gifts on the teenage girl. The breakup would lead to John Eric further feeling traumatized and betrayed often telling people that Kelly left him for his enemy. Armstrong would state that he viewed Kelly's acceptance of the gifts as it being a form of prostitution. The other boy had bought and paid 
for Kelly's affection in John Eric Armstrong's eyes. To John Eric Armstrong, all women were whores. They could easily be bought and paid for. This viewpoint would go on to shape the rest of John Eric's life. In 1992, John Eric Armstrong would graduate high school from New Bern, North Carolina High School. He graduated as an average student, never really standing out either for good or bad. He was a fairly forgettable teen, according to those who remembered him from that time in his life. For all accounts and purposes, John Eric Armstrong was fairly unremarkable in every sort of way. After graduating high school, Armstrong decided to join the military. He would choose to join the Navy in Raleigh, North Carolina. Not only had Armstrong made the life-changing choice to join the military, it is also thought that 1992 would be the year that John Eric Armstrong would commit his first murder. Well, according to John Eric Armstrong, that is, it is yet to be confirmed if that murder back in 1992 actually took place or if it is the boasts of a disturbed mind seeking notoriety in the macabre. John Eric Armstrong would hide his dark, murderous side over the next few months after enlisting in the Navy. In 1993, Armstrong would go on to be assigned to the largest naval ship in the world, the USS Nimitz. The ship was a modern feat of naval engineering. It was a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, and serving on her decks was an honor for many of the soldiers that would cross her stern. For John Eric Armstrong, the USS Nimitz would bring him to a woman who would become his future wife. Katie Rednoska. The two would get married in 1998. Being aboard the ship would also afford Armstrong a far more sinister opportunity. The ship traveled the oceans constantly by enlisting and being a crew member aboard the aircraft carrier. It allowed John Eric Armstrong the ability to enact his dark, murderous fantasies across the world. Going port to port afforded him the opportunity to seize victims at his heart's desire, and then to leave the vicinity within a few days, and no one would be the wiser. Again, this is all the way events went down, according to John Eric Armstrong. Armstrong would be required to take safety classes. One specific class he would take would be directed at training avoidance of soliciting sex workers while traveling abroad. When asked to describe John Eric Armstrong, many of his naval brethren stated that John could be moody. He was nicknamed Opie by his naval friends for his red hair and freckles after the young child in the Andy Griffith show who shared the same physical characteristics. Again, he was described as fairly unremarkable. He was a person who was forgettable 
for all accounts and purposes. John Eric Armstrong would end his service with the military after six years in the Navy. He ended his military career with two good service medals, an award given to naval soldiers for every three to four years they served in the Navy. He also received four promotions during his time with the military. He and Katie would get married in 1998 and the couple would settle down in Detroit, Michigan. In 1999, John Eric Armstrong would complete his time with the Navy. After leaving the military and settling down in Detroit, John Eric decided to enroll in classes at the Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan. He and his wife Katie would welcome their first child that year. Katie was originally from Michigan, and it's thought that the couple settled in Detroit to be closer to her family after they got married. John Eric would begin a job at the retailer Target for a short time before moving on to become an airline refueler at the Detroit Metropolitan Airport. He and Katie would soon find out they were pregnant with their second child. John Eric seemed like a happy, newly married father on the outside. Inside, however, he was a seething math of rage and sadism. In 2000, John Eric Armstrong's rage would bubble over. It was at this time that Wendy Jordan would have the misfortune of crossing paths with John Eric. On January 2nd, 2000, John Eric Armstrong supposedly went for a walk near his suburban neighborhood of Dearborn Heights, Michigan. He would report to an unknown passerby that he had witnessed a gruesome discovery lying within the nearby Rogue River, a 127-mile-long river that ran through the metro area of Detroit and much of southeast Michigan. John Eric Armstrong would tell the passerby that while he was walking by the riverbed, he began to feel sick to his stomach. Feeling ill, he would lean over the bridge and vomit over the side. While puking, he would then spot the floating remains of a human body. The remains looked to belong to a half-naked, unknown female who looked to be deceased. John Eric Armstrong would leave the passerby with the knowledge that there was a half-naked female body floating along the Rogue River. Feeling concerned and horrified by the admitted discovery, the passerby would then go and report John Eric Armstrong's story to the Michigan police. Investigators would soon be at the scene of the crime realizing that almost immediately that the deceased female remains belonged to a victim of homicide. It didn't take investigators long to identify the victim as that of 39-year-old mother and known sex worker, Wendy Jordan. After an autopsy was conducted, it was determined that Wendy Jordan had been strangled to death. Wendy Jordan also had semen and DNA evidence on her body. 
that even the icy waters of the Rogue River couldn't wash away. Investigators would follow up on the tip from the passerby who had spoken to John Eric Armstrong. And so police decided to bring Armstrong in to provide a witness statement on just what he had been doing at the Rogue River on January 2nd, 2000, and what he had witnessed while there. Immediately, John Eric Armstrong's story began to sound far-fetched to investigators. It was evident that Armstrong wasn't being truthful as to his reasons for being by the river that day and for happening across Wendy Jordan's body by pure chance. In an interview with local reporters, Dearborn Heights Lieutenant Gary Tomkowitz was reported as stating, quote, Unless you are a contortionist and hung over the bridge, you wouldn't have seen her, unquote. It was at this point in time that John Eric Armstrong would become the prime suspect in the murder of Wendy Jordan. His story just did not add up to local investigators, and it was evident that Armstrong wasn't telling the truth about his discovery of Wendy Jordan's body that cold January day. And now, for a quick break. We are Wendy and Beth, and we host the podcast Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Tell the people about the show, Wendy. Well, happy to. As you might have guessed by now, our show focuses on serial killers of color. We decided to make this the focus of our show because most of the podcasts that we listen to focus on whole white serial killers, also male, cisgender, hetero serial killers. And we thought the space could use a little spice, a little diversity. Yeah. And we believe that the victim stories are important. Many of the victims are also BIPOC folks, and the media just doesn't focus on these people. We also get plenty of opportunities to discuss race, race relations, systemic oppression, policing, history, and culture. We learn something new every day, and we hope that you do too. Join us as we tell the fascinating stories of these crimes that often go untold by the mainstream media. Subscribe or download Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color now on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Now, back to the show. John Eric Armstrong had already sowed distrust among the Detroit police investigators. When it was discovered that earlier that year, Armstrong had knowingly filed a false police report with a different police precinct, the Novi Police, regarding an incident that had supposedly occurred at his previous employer's medical warehouse. Several months previous, Armstrong had been working as a security guard at the medical warehouse. While on duty, he claimed to have been viciously attacked by an unknown assailant who had a knife and cut John Eric Armstrong. Police became suspicious of Armstrong's recollection of the events at the warehouse when his story continued to change as he was questioned further. Eventually, after more and more pressing, police were able to get John Eric Armstrong 
to admit that the report he had filed was a false claim. It would turn out that there had never been a knife-wielding assailant. In fact, John Eric Armstrong had made the whole story up, using a scalpel and cutting himself in order to fabricate the ordeal. Once his employers were informed of Armstrong's self-inflicted attack and the lies with which John Eric had so easily reported the fake assault, they would subsequently fire him from that position. On November 15th of 1999, John Eric Armstrong would swallow sleeping pills and yet another attempt at suicide. He left his wife a suicide note stating, I don't want to be known as a felony. I don't want to go on with my life having you married to me. Armstrong would yet again survive the suicide attempt and continue about his business until January 2nd of 2000, when he discovered Wendy Jordan's body on the Rogue River. The previous incident had left investigators distrustful of Armstrong's report on his finding of Wendy Jordan's body. He was a known liar to police investigators, and it was improbable that he would have been able to even see Wendy Jordan's body from where he was supposedly located on the bridge above the Rogue River. So, with the knowledge that Armstrong was a possible suspect, investigators began to dig more into the crime scene and into Armstrong himself. They had DNA that was retrieved from Wendy Jordan's body, and they had a prime suspect. It was now time to see if the two would align and bring forth the killer of Wendy Jordan. The police's concern regarding John Eric Armstrong's past history of lies and false reporting would prove to be founded. They were able to prove that the fibers found on Wendy Jordan's body matched fibers belonging to John Eric Armstrong. Investigators requested a warrant for John Eric Armstrong's arrest, but were unfortunately denied as the prosecutor's office felt there was not enough conclusive evidence to prove that John Eric Armstrong had been involved in the murder of Wendy Jordan and that they wanted to hold off arresting him right at the moment until they received a formal report on all the evidence against Armstrong. While investigators and the prosecutor's office debated whether they could begin pressing formal charges against John Eric for the murder of Wendy Jordan, Armstrong was once again on the prowl for more victims. On the evening of April 2nd, 2000, John Eric Armstrong would pull to the side of the road and offer a ride in his Jeep to a woman named Wilhelma Drain. Once she was in his Jeep, he then attempted to attack her, trying to strangle her. Luckily, she had a can of pepper spray on her and was able to spray Armstrong in the face and flee the vehicle. She would report the attempted attack to the police. During that free time, 
Armstrong would attempt another attack on an unnamed woman who was also able to get away. He subsequently attempted an attack on a male who has also not been named as well during that time, but again, that would-be victim was also able to avoid Armstrong's murderous hands. On April 7th, 2000, John Eric Armstrong would try to solicit sex from a man named Devin Marcus. He would agree to pay Marcus $40 for sex. Just as he attempted with the others before Devin, Armstrong attempted to strangle Devin Marcus, but luckily, Marcus was able to escape Armstrong's grasp. He would also report the crime to the police, giving a description of his attacker. On April 10th, 2000, the bodies of three women would be discovered along the railroad tracks along Military and Southwest Streets in Detroit, Michigan. A train passenger spotted the bodies of the women while they looked out the window of the train. It was apparent to investigators that they were dealing with a serial killer. The three women's bodies were found to have been in various stages of decomposition, signaling that the murders had occurred at different times. The women's bodies had been displayed by the train tracks in a manner that seemed staged. Quote, when you kill three people on three separate occasions and leave them in the same location, then yes, you have a serial killer. Detroit Police Chief Benny Napoleon told the Detroit Free Press, it's very serious and we are taking it very seriously as a department. It didn't take the Detroit police investigators long to determine that the recent reports of an unknown male assailant who had been attacking and attempting to strangle multiple sex workers was more than likely the same person who had murdered the three women at various separate times and left their bodies to be found beside the train tracks. Investigators were soon able to identify all three women who had been found murdered. They were 33-year-old Kelly Hood, a known sex worker and divorced mother of three, 32-year-old Rosemarie felt would be the second woman identified who looked to have been murdered about a week or so after Kelly Hood had been. She too was a known sex worker. The final woman's remains that were found at the train tracks belonged to that of 20-year-old Robin Brown. She looked to have been murdered only 12 hours previous to the train passenger's discovery of the woman's body alongside the tracks. It was apparent that someone was stalking, assaulting, and strangling the sex workers within the streets of Detroit, Michigan. Detroit investigators began to interview the sex workers within the city and were able to obtain witness accounts of attacks on other sex workers where the would-be victims seemed to have escaped. They soon discovered similarities between all the attacks. 
The suspect drove a black Jeep Wrangler with a vanity license plate that said Baby Doll. He was described as a large man, roughly 300 pounds, and he had what was consistently mentioned as a baby-looking face. Investigators were able to obtain a profile on the proposed serial killer, noting that the killer was targeting sex workers. He was preying on victims from within Michigan Avenue and that he would more than likely strike as soon as it looked to be like the killer was escalating as the three female victims were murdered within weeks of one another. Investigators waited and two nights later on April 12th, a black Jeep Wrangler was spotted prowling the streets of Michigan Avenue. The occupant of the Jeep Wrangler was none other than John Eric Armstrong. Investigators now had enough evidence to immediately arrest Armstrong for the murders of Wendy Jordan, Kelly Hood, Robin Brown, and Rosemarie Felt. After months of waiting on the DNA results that had been run on Wendy Jordan, it was determined that the DNA on Wendy Jordan did in fact match that of John Eric Armstrong. It was conclusive that John Eric Armstrong had sexually assaulted Wendy Jordan and then strangled her to death. Police would then begin to interrogate Armstrong, looking for him to confess to the four women's murders. What they hadn't bargained for is that it would not just be four women that Armstrong confessed to murdering but instead, he would boast that he murdered sex workers all over the world. He stated that he murdered his first victim when he was only 17 years old. Then, when he was in the Navy, every port that the USS Nimitz stopped at, he confessed to murdering sex workers in those places. It was looking as if John Eric Armstrong was confessing to upwards of 20 murders of sex workers across the entire world. The FBI would become involved, trying to trace every possible location and step that John Eric Armstrong would have taken during the time he was in the Navy. According to Armstrong, he murdered women in Seattle, Washington, Hawaii, Hong Kong, China, North Carolina, Virginia, Thailand, and Singapore. All were alleged sex workers. He gave no descriptions or names of the possible victims. Armstrong would go on to tell investigators that oftentimes he would return to the deceased bodies of his victims in order to have sex with them. It was in fact one of the reasons he left the bodies staged and posed so that he could easily come back and have sex with them time and time again if he so chose. Armstrong would confess to the four women's murders as well as that of one additional woman who had been murdered in December of 1999. Her name was Monica Johnson and she had been found barely clinging to life along the highway. Unfortunately, Monica would die from her injuries upon arrival at the hospital. Unable to give investigators any information, 
into just who had attacked her. The investigators were able to find DNA evidence as to who had possibly viciously assaulted and murdered Monica. When the results came back, the DNA would match none other than John Eric Armstrong. The FBI tried to unravel the possible murders of John Eric Armstrong, and over time, they and police investigators began to wonder if perhaps Armstrong was yet again fabricating stories in order to garner more attention. Of the locations he supposedly murdered women in, they were rarely able to find any possible missing people or unsolved homicides. In total, it is thought that Armstrong could have roughly 11 other possible victims outside of the five women whose body had already been found. Investigators are not sure that the 11 additional victims Armstrong has confessed to is an accurate representation of the actual number of people that John Eric Armstrong has murdered. On March 8th of 2001, John Eric Armstrong was convicted of first-degree murder of Wendy Jordan. On June 18th, he was subsequently convicted of the murders of Kelly Hood, Robin Brown, Rosemary Feltz, and Monica Johnson. John Eric Armstrong was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He was only 26 years old at the time of his arrest. Armstrong had a penchant for lying and exaggerating his crimes. He was constantly seeking attention in whatever he could, whether that be from falsifying an assault to exaggerating the amount of victims and locations of such victims. He had a constant need to be seen as more important than he actually was. He told investigators that he hated sex workers and he would often refer to them as whores. He went as far as to blame his high school breakup for being the event that would mold him into a serial killer, stating that from that moment on, he hated sex workers, viewing his ex-girlfriend's actions as that of sex workers. Northeastern University's criminal psychology professor and author, James Allen Fox, was quoted in reference to what a serial killer is like that, quote, you have to take everything they say not with a grain of salt, but with the whole shaker, unquote. While it's possible that John Eric Armstrong murdered far more sex workers than five women whose lives we know he definitely took, it is just as equally possible that John Eric Armstrong is yet again lying to authorities in order to gain some form of twisted and sickening notoriety. Perhaps his boasts of having murdered women all over the world are just the words of a delusional mind so lost in the world of their deplorable, dark fantasies that they no longer understand the difference between fact and fiction. Thanks for listening. 
and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.